welcome to Manufacturing Tech Australia with Shane Williams and Paul Mason, where they share the latest manufacturing and tech news and explore innovative solutions to help you improve your business. Until recently, the topic of AI was confined to the realms of sci-fi movies and slick salespeople trying to pimp your stuff that maybe you didn't need. But with AI hitting the mainstream media with the introduction of apps like OpenAI's ChatGPT, business leaders are now rightly asking the question about how to leverage AI to achieve a competitive advantage. You're listening to Manufacturing Tech Australia. Our guest today is Nigel Dalton, a preeminent expert in Australia on the topics of lean and AI, and living proof you don't need to be a technologist to run technology. Nigel is a social scientist who led the technology function at realestate.com.au for a good portion of its meteoric rise from a garage to a global advertising juggernaut. We discuss how AI is evolving and the opportunity for Australian manufacturers, how Lean achieved a poor name in the Australian market, but how to leverage it to its full potential, the opportunity to leverage technology and the next generation of millennial leaders through modern leadership theory, and practical tips for Australian manufacturers to make a start in embracing AI, making bets on the future to enable growth through tough economic times. We trust you'll enjoy this interview. So Nigel, welcome to the first episode of Manufacturing Tech Australia. Suitably honoured to be your first guest on the show that I think is very timely. I think there's a lot of crossover and lessons to be learned between my world, which is predominantly digital, and the world of Australian manufacturing. We're looking forward to it. And Paul and I have got some interesting things we want to try and tease out of your very scientific and experienced brain. So I'll crack straight in. I guess I want to try and set the scene. So I've been thinking about this increasing convergence between the physical and digital worlds in the manufacturing space. And I'm curious, how do you see the role of technology like AI and you know software platforms and automation and data and analytics and how that interplays with supply chain and production process and so forth? Yeah. Well, first of all, we have to agree to never use the word Fidgetal. That's uh, <laughs> it's kind of a European thing. I'm not sure they realise how awkward and uncomfortable it is when translated. But physical, digital, fidgetal, no, we're just not going to use that term. I do like uh, Kai Fu Lee's term, O to O, online to offline, and I think that points to the first problem that we have in terms of our mindsets is we think they're two separate things. And if I think back to where I've worked in the past. I've had you know, clients with a, a digital team and a physical team, say in the property business. We, they were the marketing of brand new property developments. There was the people with all the money with the show home and the big outdoor and the, that kind of stuff, the physical world. And then there was that digital team in a back office, millennials with 50K to spend on TikTok. Never the two should meet. Like probably didn't even share a CRM, to be honest. And that's the symbol of our mistake. And I'd love Australia to get to a point where it's O to O, it's the Chinese have this phrase, wrong her, which R-O-N-G-H-E, it means in harmony when combined. And so unfortunately our language does separate it, doesn't it? But, but I don't know there's a business in Australia today of any kind that isn't actually digital. It's a bit like electricity a hundred years ago. Where you know they put electricity in everything. Well, you, they weren't electrical businesses by the 1930s. They were just businesses. I'm a bit of a keen student of lean, as an, and I know you are too, Nigel. So I was just thinking, how do you think manufacturers can really leverage those lean principles to help them prepare for these digital transformations? I know you don't like that word, actually, but you know, and even just embracing technology in general. 
Oh, I've got a dictionary definition of a digital transformation. It means use computers better. That's uh, really all it takes. And I mean, someone joked recently that, that the symbol of a digital transformation at a major Australian organisation is they get off Excel and use Google Sheets. And you think about the simplicity of that mindset change, the executive team emailing each other a spreadsheet of the budget version 1.0, 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, and then losing track along the line versus the behaviours you have to have to lean in and collaborate in real time on the same document. It's the simplest kind of nut of what a digital transformation might be, and it shouldn't be that hard. I do, I do think that the sad thing is that a very tiny fraction of Australian manufacturing have ever heard of Lean. Uh, I am the chair of the Lean Enterprise Australia organisation. I'm a director of the Lean Enterprise Institute in the United States. And this is the crisis, is that after, you know, Jim Womack, who's absolutely my mentor and hero in this space, and John Shook, co-founders of LEI, and it's 25 years. You know, Jim's, you won't mind me saying, Jim's in his 70s now and set out in the 90s to educate the West as Deming had done and died protesting vigorously at the idiocy of American manufacturers, we've kind of ended up in the same place. There are some heroic stories in Australian manufacturing that, of resilient, growing, surviving businesses. I think particularly recently, uh, Tough Tonos here in Melbourne, CleanAway, very big growing Australian business, heavy engineering bent and a great environmental agenda. That's super champions of thinking this way. And they're doing it for profit, you know, like they're businesses, they are, they've got a heart, but this is a way of making more money. And, and I think that right now is in everyone's face in the state of Australia's economy in 2023, the uncertainty, the volatility, the complexity, the ambiguity about well, what, what's the interest rate going to be up or down, where's it going? That's a really difficult time to be a leader in manufacturing. And so you need you need a touchstone, you need a philosophy. And, and that's really what Lean gave us because on my guess, my observation is that Japan in the 1950s, 60s and 70s was so VUCA that um, we could barely comprehend it in the West because we had perfectly planned warlike manufacturing economies that everything ran on five-year plans. and. In Japan, it was chaotic. It was hand-to-hand -hand combat with interest rates, exchange rates, international regulations, the need to learn to make cars and boats and electronics so quickly. Wait, though, the plot has played out that in the 2020s, every business faces that same volatility, that they managed their way through to Ichiono, uh, Yoji Akeo, everyone who was a thought leader in the 50s and 60s, if we could bring them back now, they'd look at our businesses in the West in 2023 and go, very familiar conditions, have I got a deal for you? Absolutely. And they focused a lot on, you know, when times were tough, they spent the time training their people, you know, it was led by strong leadership and embracing the teams to really drive those changes and, and address all those challenges. And so I think we've kind yeah. of lost the people component. I think that's coming back now really driven by strong leaders and people that are to make the changes on the floor. I just think, you know, there's not enough time spent actually thinking in modern Australian businesses, manufacturing or otherwise. And thinking is a, a complex thing. We actually pay people like Shane and I to think, which is fantastic, Shane, I don't mind it. But 
to read, to think, to join dots, reflection, that's a core value in those Japanese companies that we're learning from here, that we've learned about lean. And Australia has this massive Achilles heel, which is we're not a thinking management culture. We're a knowing management culture. I think of the time that I've spent, I mean, I must have spent a year of my life sitting around executive tables, rolling through 120 slides in the annual strategy or business plan or budget or otherwise, which all get wrapped up in the same thing in Australia. And the three worst words that sort of end your career with these three simple words, I don't know, are not words you want to say in Australia. And so we've built ourselves a knowing culture and then the people at the next level down in organisations notice that the executives never say I don't know and show a willingness to experiment and learn. They always know. Even when they're making it up, they know. And that knowing culture leads to this hippo monster, the highest paid person's opinion. That is, if we could solve that in Australia, we'd be just absolutely killing it. Shane, you must see the hippo thing. It ends up dictating technology strategy, investment strategy, a million things. I mean, there's many well-known, very large Australian and international organisations that are run by a patriarch whose decision is the only decision. And anybody who's trying to figure out what's the right decision generally leans on what's the boss going to say? And you comment around not being willing to say, I don't know. I think if you, at the exec, absolutely no one wants to be the person who says, I don't know. But to your point about the people looking up at the executive, I think the assumption is everybody above me knows. And if they say they don't, oh shit, the ship has no rudder. I'll be scared and I won't know what to do. So I almost wonder it's kind of endemic. Well, look, I see it play out right now in, in this phenomenal obsession with chat GPT mm-hmm. because this large language model, again, it's somewhere on the continuum between a parrot with an enormous brain and I'll get into trouble for this, but a real estate agent. <laughs> now, you know. Forgive me, real estate agent friends, but essentially, you know, that absolute skill of being incredibly confident, Mm -hmm. using the person's name back to them in the first sentence and appearing to just have combined factoids from around the place off realestate.com.au's website, off the owners, off the council, combine those into two paragraphs that I spit back out at a a sales presentation to people selling or buying homes and it's like you know that's just there's something wrong i'm not quite confident that's right and so uh the reason the obsession with that is is because it's the easy way to know it's it sounds like you're knowing you like show me a chat gpt output that doesn't sound like it knows and it gets it famously wrong half the time i think that's an important point nigel chat gpt is only as good as the information in its data set and to date, it has no way of fact-checking its data. So when GPT-4 first came out, the first thing people asked it was, what is it like being GPT-4? Or what extra functions do you have? And it says back to you, I am GPT-3. So I think we need to be very careful about where we use this tool, especially in a business context. Just part of our obsession. I think there's another psychological dimension to chat GPT language models of that kind, is I think uh, people are a bit tired of managing people. Which is sad because the truth is people are critical to competitive advantage, to differentiating in some way, to innovating, 
to learning fast. And that's the difference is none of these things, we say large language model and learning, not really learning, not in the way a human can join dots. And yeah, that's, that's kind of tragic that we're just sick of managing people. So we want to replace all of our call center people with a, with a chatbot. Because we think that'll be cheaper. And look, I, I think it really depends on where the tools are being used. I mean, we use ChatGPT and other tools for research and summarizing data, for example, but I wouldn't be feeding it any confidential business data at this point. I really like the way Microsoft's heading in, implementing it into their enterprise software and into Bing Search and other solutions, like where they're actually using the natural language tools to query information and gain insights into the business. You know, I think that's where this stuff actually adds real value. I think the actual application of ChatGPT within proper grown-up businesses is is a while off yet. I'm not mm. convinced it adds huge value. Documentation is an interesting one, though, where there are sometimes, like particularly in code, if you've got old legacy code, how does it work? Because in the olden days, when, when we were the first days of Agile, olden days, 2005, we believed in the Agile elves and goblins who would, we didn't need to document code. We didn't need to comment code. If fuck the, the structure of the code is is the documentation. And uh, so there's a, and a lot of undocumented. Uh, and that seems to do a good job of analyzing code structure and function and, and what is there, which can help another generation for sure. In manufacturing, I think if I look at the way the likes of companies like Toyota work, I don't think you're going to see chat GPT powered robots, algorithms, methods, processes, and on cords or otherwise on mm. the shop floor for a very long time. Yeah. And this is, and it's almost to me, Henry Fordish to be chasing that. So if I divide my mental model into Henry Ford, may the worker leave his brain in the locker and come and do what they're told all day to the maximum efficiency versus uh, Toyota and Taichi Ono, which is we will only succeed by harnessing the top three inches of every worker on improving the work and the quality of our product for our customers. And I don't think that we're harnessing ChatGPT to do that. We're harnessing ChatGPT to replace workers who refuse to put their brain in their locker and talked back. These, what did Musk's friend call them? He called them the dog bereavement leave loving entitled software developer skittlehead hr types that he'd laid off three quarters of twitter he just that was him i don't want to manage them and that's the wrong motivation it is you a you don't automate until your process is simplified massively and you and it's repeatable then you automate then you there's so much before you automate that, no, that people haven't read that part of the book. I think that the great book of lean in Australia must be alphabetically ordered because the section on 5S being a number was right at the front and everyone just skipped right over it and went straight into the guts of whatever came next in the alphabet. And that yeah. that deeply frustrates me is you, you don't bring in this level of automation and technology to any business manufacturing in particular until you've sorted the process out, you know, and that's that 5S sort, set, shine, standardize, sustain. There's variations of that that theory. Mm. Those work beautifully in digital businesses, by the way. They're like, thank you to the lean Japanese community for creating that. 
but we have no patience. I think that's the problem too, is ask a business, have you ever done any work with lean or work with a lean advisor or consultant? And the response is always, oh yeah, yeah, we've, we've done leans. Look at our shadow boards over there in the corner. Aren't they great? And it's like that, that's actually not. And in some cases, lean gets a bit of a, a bad rap here for that particular reason. You know, they haven't embraced the culture of it, the continuous improvement, the ongoing nature of it, that it's always improving. So, you know, I think that needs to be rethought. Organizations need to be sustainable and Toyota always had the principle, whatever percentage of people were laid off, that percentage of executives were laid off. Mm. And I'm damn sure that if that had happened, I mean, Musk did it at Twitter, but he laid everyone off to be there. So if that principle applied in the West, I reckon the world would be different. I guess while we're talking about productivity, if we step aside, I know you've spent a bit of time looking at the Hawthorne studies, Nigel, back a hundred years ago. How do you think some of those things could be applied in modern manufacturing context? Well, so Hawthorne for me is kind of like a, it's the, the thing that, it's the second thing on the journey. There was a pivot point around the early 1900s when Thomas Edison and Henry Ford, probably two of the greatest characters in, mod, in the modern industrial era, were friends. You know? And so Ford went off and invented the production line with Edison's encouragement to think about how things were made and the systems and automation and edison was an amazingly experimental industrial level of experimentation so he had systems and processes for doing that and he encouraged ford to do the same and lo and behold we got the production line hawthorne was the main experimental center the greatest challenge being a leader in the lean world today is that all of our knowledge and all of that wisdom is locked up in cellulose in books that cost $80, mm. like the, the machine that changed the world, republished a few times, but those books are from the 90s. Like, good luck. You're going to a vintage bookstore to find yourself one of those. <laughs> it's all in there. They read so well in a contemporary sense. But getting started on a journey when you already know everything, because that's how you became mm. to be the head of manufacturing or the CEO or the CFO, Getting started is so hard, which I think is actually the job of consultants. That is the role played by someone coming in to start the fire because you won't start it yourself. So bringing those concepts together and thinking about the point you made around how do we break the cycle of knowing into you know being driven by the information available and actually asking the right questions, you know, trying to break away the hippo concept and bring together I suppose my question is, how can we drive adoption of data-driven decision-making and what role do you think that tech and AI plays in enabling that? I think the best example, the best little-known example, because this company is synonymous with digital innovation in the last decade, and they're a bit embarrassed about the fact that the Spotify model, which was an organisational thing for a company that had less than a 1,000 staff, became so widely adopted by consultants and caused a cult. So I think I reckon that the, the Spotify, Daniel Eck and the team must have a really strong sympathy with how the Japanese felt when American consultants left there going, Six Sigma, Six Sigma is the answer. But because everyone ran off and did the Spotify organization model with guilds and tribes and squads and all that kind of stuff. And we had a damn good crack at that but never fell for the trap of trying to implement it from the textbook that we've since made within our own REA world and, and, and made a variant of it. So they've got a new model. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, if you Google it, you'll find about two things on the internet on this one. They've been using it since 2016, and it's based on growing a business in risky times, in volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous times. And it's very data-centric. It's fascinating. And it turns out it's sort of a circularity because one of the first areas they used this thinking within was at Spotify within the use and application of data science and AI. How could that be brought to bear on product innovation for them? So I'm a Kiwi, so the word's hard to say. It's dib, D-I, not dub. That's a, that's a form of music. This is dib, D-I-B-B. If you Google it, you'll find uh, a couple of papers on it, and it aligns with some additional work they've done around culture and teams and highly aligned, highly autonomous teams. Google those two things. And so DIBS stands for data, insight, belief, and bet. Again, Kiwi accent coming out, that's B-E-T, a gamble, not bet as in a bit or a bite. And I first learned about this only like 2019. I'm embarrassed to say like it had been that secret. And I'm, those are the circles I move in, that, that secret. And so what they invented was this protocol for how you decide what you're going to do. And the starting thing is you have to say, I don't know. Then it's what data have you observed? What data have you found? Is it user behavior data? Is it census data? Is it audience data? Is it mobile uptake data? What And you cannot have a conversation without bringing some data to the table. Now, the fact is a lot of companies struggle to get that data. They don't have the plumbing. And that's where most of our work and our data practice at ThoughtWorks goes today is still plumbing. Insight's the next thing. So we're not asking ChatGPT to read all the data. We're asking a human to go, okay, based on your experience, what is, what, what's the patterns you're seeing? What's your insight from that? And the teaching example I use is, was of the days when they user users on mobile Spotify were just starting to accelerate ridiculously because you've probably all now completely forgotten that used to just be a, basically a desktop software that you listen to while you're at work. So the insight was, wow, if we don't put more developers into our mobile capability, we've got like now 20% of our users using the mobile app and 1% of our developers are mobile developers. Mm -hmm we are going to get caught in product innovation very soon. What was, and so that's data and insight. Belief, uh, we, could, we could lose the farm here. This is, a, we need, this is high stakes that if we aren't serving customers where they are, uh, we need to do something. Well, how are you going to test that belief? Well, we're going to make a bet. So that's the hypothesis. How are we going to test it? Well, we're going to do an experiment or a bet, which is we will see if we can get people to swap careers from software developer web to software developer mobile. Do people want to do that? We don't actually know. So that was their bet. Bet number one, transfer our own staff to new skill sets. Bet number two was start hiring and focusing on mobile people. And then short term, testing those out, little thin slice, small, medium and large bets. And this is the simplest way in the world you can integrate data into your modern organization. Now, they based that on a book by a brilliant author called Annie Duke. I think it's Thinking in Bets. And she is a management professor who was a professional poker player. 
It's a superb book talking about the mindsets of managers and the mindsets of poker players and how they're completely different and how to how to harness that thing. And she's particularly harsh on the on this knowing culture we have amongst the the leaders of business. That yeah, I have to know that. And her other one that I love is a thing called resulting, where we. We, we assign our wins with a quarterly plan or a budget or something. With that, we did it and it worked. We assign entirely to our own personal skill. When in fact, much of the time, it's luck. Nigel, I'm glad you brought up management methodology because I'm curious to know your thoughts on how you think the next generation of manufacturing leaders will embrace this technology and, and will it be different than their predecessors? Like, What do you think are the, the changes we're likely to see? The big arcs of society right now are what should be in the FY24, 25 business plans of every Australian organisation. Because we'll handle it differently as the kind of boomer executive managers. We'll think we'll bring the hippo mindset to this, whereas the next generation will bring a millennial mindset to the same problem and probably look at the data. The big arcs are ageing, climate, social equity and AI. So if you don't have a slide on each one of those in this year's plan, and to some extent in in every major investment plan that you write, whether that's you're buying a million dollars worth of CRM or what what's our climate thinking, what's our climate dimension? And it might take you know ESG, which is our only institutionalized response to that, environmental, social, and governance. Oh, we better have an ESG page. Okay, I'm up with that. That's cool. You're not totally passionate about it, but at least you acknowledged it. Mm. And if you take a dibs approach to environment, you go, okay, the data, yeah, it's warm. It's one and a half degrees warmer. And, the, and, and so you see where all the fights go on between you know, the left and the right or over all that data. It's just weather. It's not really data. And actually, no, it looks like a lot of data like it's been collected. And the insight and belief are very controversial. That defines the two parties around that. So there's a very strong insight from some pretty major scientific institutions that yeah that this is bad and the seas will warm and the weather will change and all those kind of things so the belief is we should maybe cut carbon maybe we shouldn't mine as much coal those kind of things you can make some small bits but we actually need big bits in that space i think a younger generation do dibs naturally and they're prepared to be humble enough to say they don't know i think that's an interesting one you talked about the boomers, if you think about some of our more traditional manufacturing businesses you know, in, in Australia, we're probably at that pivot point where there's about to be the handover of power between the founders and potentially the kids of the organization and whatnot. And that pivot point where the next generation to come in says, I appreciate what I'm inheriting, but I'm not going to do the way things my parents did. I'm not going to do the 70 hours and I'm not going to do things on paper and I, we need to think differently. We're ready to adopt something. That could be an interesting pivot point in terms of investment and opportunity. I think so. The tendency to think smaller too, I think about like this, this absolute separation of the sub-tribes within a typical Australian organisation into the business and tech because they just didn't speak each other's language, didn't go to school together. And it's a bit embarrassing not really knowing all about how code works and serves your organization has 
probably contributed to an immense amount of misinvestment in technology. We're getting a generation now who grew up with a mobile phone in their hand and are a lot more comfortable with collaboration and saying, I don't know. That's a tremendous competitive advantage for them. I do see the generational switch happening now. It's fantastic to see. It's bringing to the table in manufacturing concepts like circular lean. Uh, so C lean, which clean, very clever. <laughs> There's a, a growing number of people who are saying, you know what, there really can't be any externalities in our manufacturing process anymore. The price of the goods has to include the treatment of waste as recycling or finding co-manufacturing or, you know, the old classic of excess heat being used to create energy. That's going to be a big deal in the next 20 years as we address those giant issues like climate change and corporate responsibility. Now, the challenge is it probably will put the prices of things up. And maybe that's okay that mining, for example, in Australia actually genuinely completes the circle and doesn't just send pollutive chemicals down into the into the ocean because they can and this is the war this is the generational war this is the kind of adani scale old 20th century world war ii american management mindset that you know is obviously spread to many countries versus a more holistic humanistic lean thinking approach to this stuff we were just it's the system, as William Edwards Deming said so long. The system creates these complexities and gives us these bizarre permissions to pollute, permissions to pass off costs onto another generation. My favourite science fiction of the last couple of years has been the Ministry of the Future, where a government sets up a, a requirement for someone to represent the next generation in Parliament. What happens next? So, Nigel, it's all some good points, some some great books and some good examples you've provided. I'm just thinking, so next steps from here, if I'm listening to this, you know, what's something I can do to take away an action from my side? Well, books are a great start. If you're an executive, you just actually need to lean to some of the new knowledge and the way that knowledge has been put together. Uh, I honestly think we can't expect too much change from a boomer generation of Australian executives now. They're on the downward run to retirement. Where we should invest our time is the 35-year-olds. This next year, give them the tools, give them the critical thinking tools, give them the books, and as they come into leadership roles over time, this will amplify the generational innovation change this country needs accordingly. So, yeah, if you can read one book this year, Annie Duke, Thinking and Bets, is the book. Because with that, you'll start to accept that you aren't the almighty knowing executive that you thought you got the job because you were, that you're in fact managing a volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous ecosystem. And you need to learn new ways of doing it. And data is a big part of that. And at some point, an AI assistant, you know, there's a great, I saw a great tweet this morning going, you know what, at one point, the exact criticisms that are being leveled at ChatGPT today oh, it's dehumanizing and it's unreliable, it's got no essence to it, we're leveled at typewriters. Changing our handwriting, oh, handwriting sacred to our society. Actually, you know what? The typewriters have leveraged a lot of productivity in the manufacturing sector and every other sector in the world. 
So if you think of these tools as, as your assistance, your decision aids, the capacity to read a lot more data from a lot more systems, and then use that DIBS metaphor, the DIBB. And if you did one thing, implement that as a discipline at the table you sit at. Don't come in with the highest paid person's opinion, come in with data, put it on the table and go, wow, this is interesting. And here's my insight. What's yours? I'm, I, I can't know what's going on here, but on my insight is this pattern's appearing. And my hypothesis or belief is that we should walk into this in the next quarter and stop some work to start some new work. That thinking about investment and in you will change your world. And then I've got a very old fashioned idea about how we'll actually make our companies more resilient. And that is by leaning into a passion for running operations effectively. There's a definite gain to be had from walking away from the innovation theater and innovation speak and starting to get passionate about how things run. If you're going to think about operations, you're going to think about lean, no question. So whether it's you're starting your journey and just put some time into, you know what, it'd be great. Instead of trying to desperately grow the top line 10% for our company, we removed 10% of the waste and made more money. Again, this false obsession that executives have what growth must be at the top line mm. when growth is truly about the efficiency of your engine at making profits. And you can do just as well by eliminating waste, buying better systems, not implementing systems poorly over the top of inefficient processes. And I think I'm very optimistic about those two factors being cared for by a new generation. We just got 10 years of awkward conflict between the generations that we have. The hippo revenue growth chasing, you know, just put the blinkers on and go hard versus a very much a dibs, breadth of humanity thinking, 5S passionate, generation to come. Nigel, that's an awesome note to end on, mate. I appreciate you joining us for episode number one. Thanks for your insight. And no doubt we'll have you back. Be delighted. You're doing the good work. And if we just get one person interested in thinking these ways, the world will be a better place. Thanks, Nigel. And thanks everyone for listening. Join us in the next episode as we chat with Brad Parsons, the founder of Movis, which is a great example of Aussie tech using AI-enabled IoT devices to solve real-world business problems in preventative maintenance. See you then. Thanks for tuning in to Manufacturing Tech Australia with Shane and Paul, recorded on the traditional lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri people. For more information, jump on the manufacturingtech.au website. Remember to hit the follow button to join us again next time as we continue to explore the intersection of manufacturing and technology.